Okay, so last week, uh, and if you're new, I'm just going to catch you up to speed. We've been going through the book of Revelation, okay? Um, A challenging book. Uh, Many people avoid it. In fact, I've heard some of you say that uh, your parents or grandparents, when you first became a Christian, said, don't read that book, okay? Uh, but, and then we also, we come at it from different backgrounds, right? For some of us, it's, it's the only book some of us have studied. And we're just like, I know, I've figured it out. No one else had before, but I've unlocked the keys to Revelation, right? And some of you are here, we love you. But, <laughs> but we all come at it from a very different place. And some of us, we have a lot of information. And some of us, we have no information about it. And we're just curious, like, what is this about? Okay, and so we've seen that the Apostle John writes this letter. And and as he is literally taken into the very presence of God, and he sees the glorified Christ, and we see this incredible description in chapter 1. It's amazing. Uh, And then uh, the glorified Christ tells him, you're going to write down what is and what is to come. And so he goes into this process of writing to these uh, seven churches, uh, these seven historical churches, and, and, and he writes a specific message to each of them. But we know that that message wasn't just for them. It was for, it says, he who has ear, let him hear. So it was for everybody then, and it even applies for us today. And, and so we walk through that. And then chapters four and five, uh, what Ken taught on last week was just all worship. This incredible uh, moment where, where once again, he is, he is seeing the worship of the creator God, the, the lamb uh, who's, who's not dead, the lamb that is standing, we read, and, and who has victory. And all of creation is glorifying and worshiping him. Uh, it was so cool because I watched online last week and I, I could hear you guys through the live stream and it was like a cool thing. Uh, and, and so, uh, but, but that's every time we come together and we just worship, uh, it's like a glimpse of, of what it's going to be like when everybody all time is together glorifying and worshiping him. And so we looked at that incredible picture, uh, that image last week. And so um, I gave him the section on worship just so that I could come back and teach on wrath. For 14 chapters. Aren't you excited you're here today? If you're new, like, you landed, right? Okay, so here we are, right? So so from chapter 6 today to 19, we just get to, like, unpack how awful things get together, okay? But one of the things that that I found as I've studied this uh, and walked through this is the the strangeness of having... Uh, this, this incredible image of worship, right? Chapters four and five, it's worship. And then all of a sudden, immediately, we go into wrath. And I think for most of us in this room or watching online, we go, man, that's a strange, that's a strange thing like, like to, to, to attach together. And it doesn't make sense to a lot of us. And I think that that's strange and it doesn't make sense to us uh, for a couple different reasons. One is this. We do not fully understand the holiness of God, right? Like like we think we know holy. In fact, we'll say that's a holy person or that, but we have no idea how how God is completely and perfectly separate from sin. 
He is almighty, all-powerful. He is holy. In fact, that's one of the things they're declaring in worship over and over again is holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we don't fully grasp what that means. And then secondly, we don't fully understand the sinful condition of our hearts, the sinful condition of humanity. In fact, often what we try to do is convince ourselves that it's not that bad, right? Right? We just, it's okay. Oh, it's okay, right? And, uh, and some of us, we have uh, accountability partners. I call them like struggle buddies. And, and, and it's literally like, what, like we, oh, you struggled, you failed again? Oh, I failed again too. All right, well, let's go. And it's like, no. Like we're to help each other out of that. So there's this, there's this um, uninformed or this naivety to the extent of, of sin and what that does to this perfect and holy God, how that, how that sin is an act of defiance, it's an act of opposition to God. And, and what that does in and of itself is it creates distance between you and a perfect and holy God who loves you. You wanna know why sin is just awful? Just center on that. It's the reality that that's gonna hinder your ability to hear from God. Uh, you, you, you know, like, like it, it's funny how we think I can just live in opposition to him, but every time I pray, he needs to listen to me. And I want you to just think about that. That's not how it works. And, and so we have this lack of understanding of his holiness, of our sinfulness. And, and we also can't grasp in our minds all that God wants to accomplish, can we? That's why we're fascinated with Revelation is we're just trying to get a glimpse, trying to understand of all that he's going to accomplish, and yet we can't. And there's words, there's, uh, there's symbols that are just like beyond even our ability to, to navigate and understand. And so we, 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 we are, we're unable to grasp that picture, and we're also unable to grasp the full reality that there are forces of evil working every second in opposition to God's perfect plan. And so we don't live in that reality, do we? Like, like and, and in particular for us uh, here in this culture, just in, in our country, I mean, to be honest, we're bubble wrapped in a lot of ways uh, around the, the conditions that other people are dealing with in different parts of the world. And, and so we, we think about this and how this impacts and affects us. Uh, and so this, this really um, hits us in our picture of who God is, of what God wants to accomplish. And, and what you need to know is that God is long-suffering. We see that that is one of his characteristics. He is long-suffering with us and for us, but eventually he will and he must judge sin. And he must rescue his people. He has to do that. And so as we study these 14 chapters, 6 through 19, remember this. And this is so important. John wrote these words, words to encourage people. He wrote these words to encourage people from every age in history. And, and, and what these chapters are going to describe to us is, is this climax of this cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And, and, and so uh, that, that's so important for us to understand as we go into this section. And no matter what key you use to unlock Revelation, 
and many of you have different keys that you've used to unlock revelation, what you will see, no matter which key you use, is you will see the exalted king of kings, and you will see him vindicate his people, and he will give victory to his people who he calls the overcomers. You will see that. And that's why this is an encouragement. And, and, and so since the church uh, has never known when specifically Christ was going to return, each generation is tasked with living in light of his return. In other words, we're all called to live with expectancy that he could come back. And so the book of Revelation, uh, what it has to do is it has to be able to communicate truth to each and every generation not just to the people who were alive when these events occur. And this also helps us understand why John, the writer, used so much symbolism, okay, in the book of Revelation. He used symbolism because symbols never lose their meaning. So what he's trying to write is he's trying to write in a timeless way since he knows throughout the church age, these things are going to happen. So what we're going to look at is, is it's called different things um, in chapter six. It's called the day of the Lord. It's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter nine. And then as most of us know it as the tribulation. Okay. Now what we need to understand and, and, and remember, I didn't highlight this at the beginning. I should have highlighted it. We also launched in this series a podcast called Revelation Conversations, okay? And so I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to that, that is a great resource uh, available to you where we unpack different positions, uh, timelines, we, we unpack uh, prophecy, all kinds of things uh, in the book of Revelation. And I would encourage you to check that out through our website, ecclesiaugene.org. But Though the rapture, and we talked about this two weeks ago, though the rapture of believers is never specifically addressed in Revelation, some believe that it occurs sometime before chapter 6. Okay? Now, now, what does that mean? That means that some believe that before all this wrath comes in chapter 6, that Jesus' followers are going to be taken out of that, away from that, so that they don't have to go through it. Okay, um, and, and so if you believe that, if you, if you know someone that, that, that believes that, uh, it's easy to identify because they're the ones going, oh, bring it, bring that wrath, bring it. And you're like, yeah, you want that because you don't think you're going to be there for that. And what I would just say is always say, I'm cheering for you to be right. Like, I want you to be right. Okay, um, right? I mean, and so but there, that, that's a belief uh, that, that many people have. Okay, so... Um, we're going to look at here uh, three series of judgments, okay? Um, we're going to look at the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. We're not going to look at that all today because we'd be here all day, so we're not doing that. Um, but what we're going to see is three sets of seven judgments, and you'll see the number seven all throughout Scripture, but especially in Revelation. John loves that number. And so we're going to see rolled out these 21 different judgments and what we need to understand is the relationship that they have to each other is debated, okay? And, and it's not just like debated right versus wrong. These are incredible theologians that have uh, for years and years and years studied God's word, and they have differing views 
on this, okay? And, and, and so that's important for us to understand, okay? But how these uh, seem to be rolled out is in a cyclical manner, okay? Um, in other words, the judgments, as, as we walk through them, they're contained within each other, okay? So it's, it's essentially like looking at the same thing through different angles, okay? Now today, this afternoon, there's gonna be a game that's played. It's called the Super Bowl, if you didn't know that, okay? And during that game, whether you are cheering for one team or the other, or whether you care or you don't care at all, it doesn't matter. But at some point in time in that game, there's probably gonna be a moment where there's a call that will be made and people are going to think it's the wrong call. And what they will then do is show you more angles of that play than you ever cared to sign up for, right? I mean, it's painful. Um, and what they're trying to do is show you all these different angles of the same play so that you can see it, so that hopefully you can gain greater understanding on what was the right call and the wrong call, right? And, and, and so when we look at this, um, we see that, that these um, are likely contained into each other, and we see the intensity actually grow, okay? And, and this is also how, and we're going to read this at the end, how Jesus described these end-time events. He described them in this manner in the Gospels. We also see Daniel, Zechariah, and other prophets um, share with us events that overlap with each other, okay? Um, and, 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 and I think a lot of us understand as well, when you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're getting four different perspectives and views of the life of Christ, aren't you? And, and so this is something that's, that's common in Scripture. And the other reason for this belief is at the end of each of these sections of judgment, we see Jesus is coming back. We see final judgment, which is, yeah, there's your amen, Okay. And so regardless of how these sequences all work together, what's clear is there is going to be a time of suffering. There will be. So let's, let's walk into it, right? Revelation chapter 6, we'll read verses 1 through 8. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart uh, of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the air. And there you go. That is why so many people 
stop reading Revelation after chapter 5. <laughs> right? I mean, if you're new to church, if you're brand new to your Bible, what I just read, you were just like, what? Just, what is happening? Well, what we see here is what's alluded to the four horsemen, okay? Um, and, and, and there's actually Old Testament background for the imagery he uses. Remember, John is speaking from the language he knows, which is scripture. He's seen what was in the Old Testament. And, and so what we see, and I'll, throw, I'll have him throw the verses on here. We don't have time to read them all. But he's using background and imagery from the Old Testament out of Zechariah chapter 1, chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 14, and even Leviticus 26. And, and what John sees is he sees the lamb, uh, King Jesus uh, of, of chapter 5, we see how he begins to open the seven seals of the scroll that he took from God the Father in verse 7 there of chapter 5. And, and, and then John hears one of the four living creatures. And once again, we don't, we don't know uh, specifically who these four creatures are. Uh, many believe they're angelic beings. Um, but he hears one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Now, we, we can't miss this, all right? Because essentially what you and I need to see here is that these writers, they are coming because God sends them. Don't miss that. God is sending us. And so John sees a white horse whose rider has a bow and is, and is wearing a crown. And he goes out, it says, as a victor to conquer. Now, exactly who this rider is, has generated a ton of discussion and disagreement early in church history. Many thought it was uh, Jesus, but uh, that does not seem to be uh, the case because uh, the correlation that they draw between this, these verses and chapter 19, the only commonality is a white horse. And the other thing is it's the lamb or it's Jesus uh, who opens the seals and there is no angel who would command Jesus to do anything. Like, that's not how the chain of command in heaven works, right? And so it, it, the better view that we see from this is that this is the spirit of deception and conquest that will be embodied in the counterfeit Christ, who we know as the Antichrist or the beast that we'll look at in chapter 13. But, but we expect, we anticipate the, the Antichrist to, to resemble Christ because the Antichrist is Satan's great imitation, okay? Like he wants to nail it on this. He wants everybody to, 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 to look to the Antichrist and go, man, that is the Christ, okay? And, and so when we, when we think about even the color of white here, uh, it may refer to the forces of evil trying to appear righteous, right? Because um, what we read, and I don't want to go too far into that because chapter 13 is coming, um, many are going to be deceived by him. Many. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. It says, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception." For those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth 
and so be saved. So he is this great deceiver. He is going to come as this peaceful leader, right? Like he's not going to come on the scene and go, hey, I'm the antichrist. You should follow me, right? Like, like no, he's going to look, he's going to sound, he's going to do incredible things. He's going to be winsome. Uh, the, the imagery here is holding a bow, but no arrows. So he's going to come on the scene. He's going to solve a lot of the world's problems. He's going to be received as this great liberator. Um, and, 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 what, and when we look at this, we go, man, God's sending this? What you need to know is what God is sending out is essentially a writer who is going to bring to the surface to reveal what is truth and what is false. And so at that time, it's going to be revealed where people really stand. Is it on truth or some false misguided hope? And so that's going to bring to the surface. And guys, when you think about deception, the groundwork is laid for people to be deceived. Amen? I mean, you think about uh, just uh, the various ways that people get their facts blows my mind. In fact, don't send them to me. Right? No, I figured it out. Like, I follow this person and they hold the keys to truth and I base my life off of them. And, and guys, this is what's crazy. Like, and we see this more than ever. Like, like it, it's literally, we hang on to every word of this specific news uh, company, uh, this, this specific media outlet, um, or this influencer, this podcast, and that is our source of truth. And for some of us, we're actually going to that source of authority even more than scripture. And it's crazy, but I, but I go, man, like the, the groundwork's already laid. Like, because one of the things that happened in the last three years is people, all people found those who agreed with the views and opinions they wanted to have about the world. And what happened is, is it created this unhealthy funnel of information and we just fall right into it, right? Hook, line, and sinker. And, and it's crazy how we already see the stage is set for this, okay? Um, then the second living creature calls out the second writer, uh, this red horse, uh, it's known as the red horse of war that follows. And he too comes only at God's command. Christ is in control. That's important for us to know. And, and this rider we see is going to take peace out of the earth. What a scary thought. His purpose is to come, to grab peace, and go, you thought 2020 was bad. Watch this. And it was bad. <sighs> oh. It's awful to navigate through. It was like, hey, every divisive thing, let's dump gas on it and light it. Right? It's a mess. But, but ultimately, man, our desire to, to pursue Christ and the gospel, and it's like, ah, oh, come on. Come on, people. Come on. Right? You think of, in this time, peace just being taken out of the whole equation. And what's going to happen? My goodness, people are going to hate each other to a degree of just an all-out slaughter. Anarchy, worldwide bloodshed. Sad, sad picture. 
And so we see that that's what this writer is going to bring. And then Christ opens the third seal. And the third living creature tells the writer, come. And John looks and he sees the black horse with its rider holding a set of scales or balances. And, and what's, a, what's a logical conclusion or a logical partner with war? It's famine, isn't it? And so, and so we see, uh, you know, a worldwide war, like there's going to be uh, food supply shortages. Uh, you know, there's going to be people who help produce food uh, that are going to be killed. And, and so we see uh, this taking place. And he, and he says, from among the four living creatures, he hears something like a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a quart of wheat was about the necessary amount to sustain one person for one day. And, and barley, barley was the poor man's wheat, okay? It was normally fed to animals. It was uh, very low in nutritional value. And occasionally it would be mixed with wheat just to increase the, uh, the feeding amount, kind of like how they stuff rice in your burritos. And if you ever want to throw them off there, and I love you Chipotle people, you've blessed me many times, but... Just say, hey, hold the rice, and they'll go. I don't even know what to do, okay? Um, and so a denarius, it's basically a day's wage. In other words, a, a man is going to work all day, or females are going to work all day for just enough wheat to sustain themselves or enough barley to keep their family alive. And so what this means is crazy inflation. Don't get triggered. Relax. Um, I know that's one of the... Uh, and and so we see that that's going to happen. The, the other phrase that we see here is, it says, do not harm the olive oil and the wine. Now, nobody knows specifically what is being suggested here. Now, there's different opinions. Uh, some see it as God is setting a limit to the amount of the famine's uh, destructive results on people during this time. Um, others argue that oil and wine were the commodities of the wealthy. And so they're still going to have what they get. Um, but either way, what we see is food, uh, especially for the poor, is going to be very scarce. And, and we also see this continued opening for a platform for somebody like the Antichrist to come and say, I have the solution to feed all of you. Right? We see this platform being uh, formed. And then we go to this fourth rider and another horse comes at the permission of the Lamb of God with the command of the living creatures. And John sees a pale horse and its rider, it says, is death. Uh, and, and death here, it's that which claims the body followed by, we see, Hades, which claims the soul. And so death, it, 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 we see visiting earth and, and the results, you think of all of these things happening. And the, the, the worldwide death is absolutely devastating. You think of right now, we're at about 8 billion, give or take, people on the planet. And if you just do the math, if a quarter are gone, that's 2 billion people gone. It says killed by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now, as we've seen throughout history, uh, and, and even as the the receivers of this letter when it was written, I mean, they're connecting this to Nero. They're connecting this to Caesar, right? 
when you look at the Roman Empire and what was going on and the amount of evil and all of that, they could easily connect it to that. And, and we, we can look and point to these, these leaders, these evil tyrant leaders who have come along the ranks all throughout humanity, can't we? And we can look back and we see they caused these things. See it very clearly, right? And, and, and so why is this book such a source of encouragement? Why are these chapters such a source of encouragement for believers throughout all of history? Well, what we see here and what they saw is the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, is opening these seals. And what they're seeing is God is in complete control. He's in complete control and his purposes will be accomplished. They will be. And so when they're going through these times of suffering, they're holding, they're clinging to verses that you and I have ran from our whole life, right? And they're clinging to that reality of he who's holding the scroll. And we keep going here in verse nine, it says this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay, so John now sees the Lord opening this fifth seal and he sees under this altar, he sees uh, the people that have been killed because of their witness, because of God's word, right? In fact, the word martyr, uh, originally it means witness. And, and so we get this Old Testament imagery again. Uh, and, and, and we go back and we see how the Old Testament they, priests, they, they presented an animal to be sacrificed and the blood that was poured out would go to the base of the brazen altar. And so in Old Testament imagery, we see that the blood represents life. And so here, the souls of these martyrs, they're under the altar, indicating that their lives were given sacrificially to the glory of God. It's interesting, the apostle Paul uses similar imagery when he writes in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 17, and actually 2 Timothy as well. But in Philippians 2, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So he's using these same words. So these saints, they were killed because of their witness for the truth of God's word. They didn't compromise even when it cost them their lives. And they represent all of the martyrs who have laid down their lives for Jesus. You know, one of the things that is so important uh, for us to remember and to remind ourselves of is the initial calling that Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, this is what you have to do. And you know what he said? He said something that no one wanted to hear. He said, if you want to be a true disciple of mine, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. Now, when we, when we look at that, a lot of us will go, oh, that's just self-denial. I got that covered. And by saying that, you, you don't have it covered. But it's like me saying, I'm a really humble pastor. Um, right? You're like, no, no, you're not. So we see that him taking, saying, you need to take up your cross and follow me. 
You guys, that's not heavy. That's not, oh, it's going to be a heavy burden. That's not self-denial. You guys, the cross meant one thing, one thing only. You may have your gold chain. You may have your tattoo of it. But in those days, death, that's it. That's what it meant. That was the invitation. And we see every disciple of Jesus is in essence called to be a martyr. And so John has in view all of those who have suffered for their faith. And and you guys, this is a repeated theme in Revelation. This is a repeated emphasis all throughout the entire New Testament that the church, uh, the nature of the church is to be a church that's a martyr. And and so we see these martyrs here, they cry out in verse nine. And what they're crying out for, and this is important because when you read that, you go, can they pray that? Can they cry out to God and say that? But they're not crying out for personal revenge here. What they're crying out for is divine justice. Okay, see, uh, for many of you, when you pray to God, you pray, thy kingdom come, don't you? Right? A lot of us will, will pray, thy kingdom come. When you say thy kingdom come, what do you mean? You're you're praying for God to bring about the fulfillment of his plans. You're praying for justice, aren't you? You're praying for God to act now at what you know he's going to do. And whenever you pray that, you're actually echoing what they're praying to the Lord. And I love how we see God's care for these martyred saints. It's made clear in verse 11. Uh, They're given the white robe, right? Symbolizing honor, purity, victory. And and maybe even more than those is that imputed righteousness of Christ is placed upon them. And, and And we read that and people are reading this all throughout the ages and they're just being reassured that the souls of the martyrs who have gone uh, before us, they are in heaven. They are awaiting the resurrection and they are at rest robed in heavenly glory. Right? What an awesome picture. Guys, there's people around the world right now who are reading this and clinging to this. And they're told to rest a little longer until what? Until the number would be completed for those who are going to be killed. Now, what is God communicating by saying this? What he's making clear to these martyrs is that their sacrifice was an appointment. It was an appointment. It wasn't an accident. It was an appointment. It wasn't an accident. See, even in the death of his people, God's in control. There is nothing to fear. And then just as today, uh, so many times I feel like I walk away and I just, it just appears like the enemy is winning. When you read Revelation 2 and 3 and you see these letters to these churches, you just go, man, the enemy's winning. When you think of the context, the historical context, what they're dealing with in Rome, you just go, man, the enemy is winning. But you guys, what we see here is God has the final word. His delay doesn't mean he doesn't know. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. He knows and he cares. And you can rest in that truth. Justice has been determined already and justice will be accomplished. And so we get to rest in that. And then we uh, finish in verses 12 through 17. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Okay, so, so here we go. The lamb opens the sixth seal and, and John is like, Right? I mean, we're talking a cosmic just unearthing, right? Cosmic upheaval. All of nature, the heavens, is going to be affected. We see earthquakes. We see the sun. We see moon. We see the stars, the heavens, the mountains. We see uh, islands all being uh, affected here. And what we see him is once again using imagery, symbolism, uh, from the Old Testament. Because we see that these promises are repeated throughout Scripture as Jesus draws history to a close. These are the things that are going to happen. Uh, you can compare these uh, scenes to literally, in, in fact, I'll have them throw it on the screen, uh, in Joel chapter 2 and 3 and Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. In fact, let me read a few of these. Uh, it, it says in, jo in Joel chapter 2 verse 31, it says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, and, and look at like Isaiah 34, verse 4, where the imagery here, as, as we think of the skies and, and like a scroll, it says, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So we see this imagery. And, and, and what we also see is Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking. And you should read Matthew 24. It is amazing how chapter 6 and Matthew 24 are aligned. And so even though John here is using uh, this, this language, we see that, that all that he's saying is <laughs> frightening. It's frightening. It's a frightening scene. To the point of people are going to try to hide from the face of God, the face of the Lamb. And, and, and we also see here that, that people's position, social status, success that they had, it's not going to matter. Like none of that is going to matter at that time. Everyone's going to give an account. And you think as these things are occurring, whether how symbolic or literal they are, it's going to be crazy. And you would assume that, that they would, as a result of not only experiencing this, but knowing where it's coming from. In fact, we read in scripture, they're going to know it's God. You would assume what? That this would drive people to him. That they would see what's happening and go, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. I'm broken before you. I mean, I repent. I come back to you, God, right? That, that's what I would assume would happen. But tragically, we read that's not what happens. There's no repentance. In fact, these people are going to hide in caves among the rocks of the mountains to the point where they're going to even cry out to these mountains and rocks to kill them. Death is more desired than a relationship with the lamb. And guys, when you read uh, here, the wrath of the lamb, that's a tough one to swallow, isn't it? 
It's one of the most ironic and uh, unexpected phrases in the Bible. In fact, it sounds uh, contradictory, doesn't it? Like uh, when you think of a lamb, you don't think wrath, right? I mean, when you drive down the road on the freeway and you see some sheep and you see a little lamb, you don't go, well, there's some wrath, kids. Check it out, right? What do you do? You go, oh my goodness, pull the car over. Let's try and pet it, right? Like that's what you do. In fact, one of my brothers, he raised a little sheep in his house. I was like, what are you doing? And then we came over and saw this lamb. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, and I'm not like wrath, 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 like kids, this is, you know, no, right? We, we don't. A lamb by its nature is gentle. It's meek. It's passive. And, and in chapter five, we were introduced to the lamb that was slaughtered, but I love how it says, but now is standing. Death did not have the final say over the lamb of God. And what we also discovered in chapter five is that the lamb is also a what? A lion. And so this, this lamb is lion-like and this lion is lamb-like. Now, liberal and modernist theologians, they are quick to embrace this meek, this mild, this lowly, this gentle, compassionate Jesus, this man from Galilee. And you know what? He is all those things. He 100% is all those things. But this is only a partial picture of the Savior that we read about in Scripture. See, Scripture also reveals to us a Jesus who twice cleanses out a temple. <laughs> who, it reveals a Jesus who angrily condemns the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Calling them literally like serpents and broad of vipers. This is, this is Jesus in Scripture. Jesus is the one who talks more about hell than anybody else. And you go, that's not my Jesus then you got a Jesus problem. See, a right view of Jesus must hold intention, his love and his holiness, his compassion and his justice, his grace and his righteousness, and his mercy and his wrath. And you guys, this is one of the reasons why this book is so uncomfortable for us. This is one of the reasons we run from it. Because the lamb's wrath is a reoccurring thing. And if men and women will not yield to the love of God that is freely offered and be changed by the grace of God, then there's no way to escape the wrath of God. And that is the truth. That is a hard truth, but it's a real truth. And we see these people are going to hide their face. Like, I want you to think how crazy that is. In fact, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve hide from God, I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, really? Omnipresent? Did you miss that part? Like, you know, like, like they're hiding from God. And then we see these people, after all of this is going down, like, oh, there's a cave. Let's hide from that. You guys, here is a truth, and it's probably not the most correct way to say it. Sin will make you do stupid things. Okay? It will. Sin will cause you to do things that will in some way make sense to you, but they are absolutely destructive to everything that God wants to do in your life. And we see that so clearly here. Knowing it's the Lord, they would rather run than just repent. And guys, here's, here's, here's where we hit it. Here's the crux of the matter. Who can stand at this point? Nobody, right? No one can stand what is it talking about? There is no security. There is no firm ground to stand on that is left except God himself. 
the rest of creation is going to collapse. And, 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 and we look at this and we go, oh my goodness, but you guys, this is a great day if you're a Jesus follower. This is the day you get to see the face of Jesus. And so it's one or the other, right? We're either going to stand and, and, and we're either going to be hiding or we're either going to stand and go, there you are. There you are. There you are. We're either going to be rejoicing in his grace or terrified at his wrath. And, and, and guys, I, that's the question for us this morning. What's it going to be? Where will you stand? I would invite you to take your stand for the lamb, the king, Jesus. And there is a day coming where it's going to be too late. But you can cling to him. You can trust that his plans are perfect. And as we've seen before, he holds the keys to life and death. You guys, trust him. Stand on the truth of who he is. Receive the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ for you, for your life. And you will be blown away at how you read this completely differently. Amen? Let's pray.